Welcome to The Backstory with Dr. Ricky Singh. This podcast is focused on bringing you the latest research-based information about dramatically improving health, well-being, and quality of life. And here's your host, Dr. Ricky Singh. Welcome to The Backstory. You know, in medical school, we are all taught to ask the three basic questions in a patient's social history. We ask, do you drink alcohol? We ask, do you do drugs? Do you smoke cigarettes? And, you know, while these are pretty important questions to ask, just to help us address some of the potential health hazards with our patients, you know, I think they fail to ask some of the more significant factors not only in our current patients, but also our younger adolescent patients. And specifically what I'm talking about is vaping and the use of e-cigarettes, which can pose a grave risk to the health of our teens and younger adults. And that's kind of the topic that I want to confront today. My guest is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry here at Weill Cornell Medicine and part of the addiction psychiatry team here at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He specializes in taking care of patients with substance use disorders and addiction and has published many articles related to steroids, club drugs, which sounds exciting, hallucinogens, all in different journals. So please welcome Dr. Mashal Khan. Dr. Khan, welcome to The Backstory. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you. What's your backstory? Where were you before you joined us here at Wall Cornell, your specialty of practice, and some of the patients that you take care of? Well, I'm from Pakistan. I came over to this country almost 10 years ago, came here for training, went through psych residency in Brooklyn, did my addiction fellowship at Sinai, and Cornell was my first job out of training. And how did you decide to specialize within psychiatry to addiction medicine? That's a great question. It, the thing about addictions is that there is such a high prevalence of substance use within our psychiatric population that I felt that it was a skill that I needed to acquire to better help my patients in general. And it's just that drugs in general are are like, you know, your people are self-treating to address uh, different kinds of pathology and it it was just very fascinating to observe and uh, further learn. And I was in training during the opioid epidemic, so it was hard to ignore as well. There's a uh, a show that my wife and I just finished on Hulu called Dope Sick. I don't know if you've seen that or are familiar with it, but you know, very enlightening on how pharma was also really involved in getting doctors to prescribe this very dangerous medication. Yeah, and we're seeing another iteration of that with amphetamine prescriptions, with over-prescribing amphetamines to children that may or may not have inattention spectrum issues. There's a reckoning due on that front as well. Sure, no question. And, and I want to address that as well. So in your patient uh, population, are you treating mostly adults, mostly teenagers and young adolescents, or kind of a mix? Most folks over the age of 16, predominantly people over the age of 18. I'm not child and adolescent trained, so I don't take on patients that are younger than 16. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about vaping today. You know, so a survey came out a few years ago called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, and it showed that over the last 20 to 30 years, there has been a significant decrease in the number of teenagers smoking combustible cigarettes. This is like the regular oh, yeah. Marlboros, Camels, things like that. Yeah. And the survey reported that 70% of these teenagers went down to 58% in 2003 to about 25% a few years ago. And that sounds pretty good, right? The data suggests that doctors like yourself are doing a great job of educating patients about the dangers of smoking. 
But one of the unforeseen side effects was this explosive rise in the adolescent use of e-cigarettes and vaping, which is kind of normalizing the use of cigarettes. So tell us, in your experience, what have you seen with this younger group or even some young adults transitioning from smoking to vaping? And how has that really escalated in the recent years? I say since the 80s, there has been a gradual decline. But over the past two decades, there's been a sharp decline in cigarette use. And there were a number of factors that contributed to that, including the public's awareness around the health consequences, governments tightening regulations around where and how one can purchase or smoke. And And even in New York, you know, the taxes on cigarettes are so high that sometimes it's cost prohibitive to buy cigarettes. Close to 15, 16 bucks a, a pack. Sure. But it took a long time, right? I mean, we knew about the deleterious health effects of cigarettes for many years, lung cancer, bronchitis, COPD, until we actually took some action. In that sense, so you saw a decrease in the number of patients smoking cigarettes, but we're slowly seeing an increase in e-cigarettes. Right. So the thing with that is, even though e-cigarettes have been on the scene since late 2010s, it wasn't until they were marketed by some major companies as alternatives to cigarette smoking, or they could possibly, they were falsely marketed as healthier alternatives to cigarette smoking, or it could help you quit cigarette smoking. Let's talk about that for a second. So there's a company, Juul, which most people know about. So Juul was actually started by someone I went to high school with, no way. James Monsies. Um, and we, he and I are still in touch, and we talk about his progress from what used to be Plume and Pax, now all the way to Juul. And, you know, the mission statement of the company that he started when he was at Stanford was to get patients off cigarettes to smoke e-cigarettes, which was, quote, safer. So question number one, did you see that to be true? Did you see that it was actually successful at converting some of your patients who were addicted to cigarettes and transitioning them to an e-cigarette option? There are a few things about the Juul product itself. It's designed in a way that's supposed to be more addictive. It's a more efficient delivery product. Now, just taking, uh, just zooming out for a second, an e-cigarette itself is a device that has a a battery with a, a cartridge and an atomizer, right? So within that container, the cartridge, they have this e-liquid that contains propylene glycol or glycerine and nicotine and flavoring. And the nicotine content in Juuls was very different from all the other e-cigarettes that were available on the market. They had higher nicotine content. Their nicotine molecule was actually a nicotine salt, which was atypical from free-based nicotine that was available in all the other e-cigarettes. And the rationale for that, I think, was that it was softer on the throat, whereas the other free-based nicotine products were harsher on the throat. So they tweaked the product in a way that it would be closest to a cigarette, in, in its experience. And the nicotine percentage was higher than an average cigarette. It was the most potent cigarette that you were using. Tell us a little about nicotine. What is nicotine? How does it affect your body? How does it affect your brain? Why is it so addicting when you inhale or, or intake nicotine? That's a great question. So I teach a class on the neurobiology of addiction a few times a year to trainees. And there's a slide in there that shows us that sort of details of all the substances that individuals ever use, how 
likely are they to develop a use disorder or an addiction or dependence, whatever you want to call it. And top of that list is nicotine. 32% of people from the pool of people that have ever used will develop a dependence on nicotine. So it's a physical dependence, not necessarily an addiction. A physiological dependence. And if you play that out, it's harder to quit nicotine. It takes on average seven attempts for people once they've developed a dependence on nicotine physiologically to quit nicotine. And in, just to sort of give you a contrast, 23% of the people that ever try heroin will develop a heroin use disorder. I mean, that's quite profound. Yeah, so <laughs> I was going to ask that. How does that compare to opioids? Or alcohol, yeah. or you know, cocaine, or these other right, kind of right. Processes. So second on the list was heroin, which is twenty three percent. Then cocaine is like seventeen percent. Alcohol is fifteen percent. Amphetamines, you think that there'd be, uh, it's eleven percent. But I think it's not just the molecule; it's not the substance alone that tells us about these numbers. It's the availability of that molecule in whatever product. It's the social acceptance of that and just the, the psychology around that thing. So with nicotine, the psychology around it has more recently has been that's driving a lot of kids to use it is that there are these flavorings. There's, you know, creme brulee or mango or mint flavored. And what we've learned is that a lot of this was intentionally marketed to these kids. And the data is showing us that it led to more often use per episode of use. And you kind of see the government striking back on that. Yeah. You know, when I speak with, again, my friend James, you know, the initial thesis was get patients off combustible, get them on e-cigarettes. Yeah. Obviously, when the company started making money, leadership changed and they wanted to repivot of who yeah. they want to attract. And that's when flavors like frosted sugar cookie and like gummy bear and all these stuff came out, which yeah. attracted, you know, young adolescents. And now the government's saying, you know what, get rid of all these flavors. And, you know, even here in New York City, you can't buy flavors anymore. It's always either menthol or regular or something like that. Yeah, I'd like to agree with you on that. But reality is there are these off-brand cartridges that are always made and available at all our lovely bottegas. So those products are available. Unfortunately, they might have high benzoic acid or retinol content, which actually contributed to what we saw back in 2018-2019, the E-Valley syndrome that became very popular. A lot of kids with inflamed lungs and attributed to e-cigarette use. So when you see a younger adult on e-cigarettes and quote addicted to vaping or e-cigarettes what are some of the strategies that you discuss with them and try to implement and are those same strategies that we use to get people off cigarettes also applicable to those with e-cigarettes yeah yeah for sure so every single time and we talk to our primary care and pediatric colleagues about this all the time it's always follow implementing the six a's into practice anticipate that there's a risk of nicotine use amongst the patient that you're evaluating or servicing. And it's always important to ask, are you using any kind of nicotine product, whether it's a tobacco product, combustible, non-combustible, a vape product? And then if they say yes, then assess for the readiness of for them to quit in the next 30 days. And alongside that, advise for them to quit and inform them of all the health outcomes that are associated with 
the use and the benefits of cessation. And assisting them is very important with a proper quit plan and providing them with behavioral supports, counseling, nicotine replacement therapies, pharmacotherapies, and just informing them that, you know, it takes a few tries to be abstinent long term. The average number of attempts are six to seven. Mm -hmm. What if, you know, there's a parent listening or even someone that you've seen in your clinic Somebody comes in and say, you know, Doc, I'm not smoking regular cigarettes. I know you get lung cancer and things like that. These are e-cigarettes. They're supposed to be way safer. So I don't really want to quit because I think it's not as dangerous to my health. How do you answer that? Yeah, I I think meeting them where they're at, just giving them the resources and helping them just go on their own journey and understanding what they're consuming actually entails helps. There are a lot of resources out there for parents. There's My Life, My Quit, a great online resource, Smoke Free Teen, The Truth, The Truth Initiative is also another one. And if you're a New York State resident, there are a lot of city and state-run initiatives that even provide free nicotine replacement therapy packs. If you just call in to 1-866-NEW-YORK-QUITS, basically. Do you think most... Of the people who out there who vape or use these cigarettes know what you mentioned about the nicotine content compared to cigarettes? I, mean, I didn't know that, and that's something you certainly educated me on. Are people aware that that's so much more addicting than probably a, a combustible cigarette? I don't think so. Everybody, even the physicians, the trainees that are attending the the neurobiology lecture that I told you about earlier, they're always surprised when they look at those numbers. They're like, what do you mean? How can it be more addictive than heroin? But it's not just the molecule itself. It's the, as we said earlier, there's the social acceptability, the the accessibility around it. But you you have to be mindful that even though there's a short-term gain from it, which, you know, it does enhance your attention. It does allow for improved focus and whatnot, some relaxation. There is a dopamine released in the brain that allows for you to have this nicotine buzz from, it's you know, as soon as you use it. But downstream, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms that are going to make you feel jittery, that are going to make you more anxious. The data that we have shows us that long-term people tend to develop depression, more depressive or anxiety symptoms long-term. So, I mean, there there are all those psychiatric or mental health consequences associated with long-term use. Is is there a a tolerance that one can develop with vaping and just like this nicotine buzz you mentioned and this dopamine release? As you smoke more and more e-cigarettes or as you vape more, do you need more and more vaping to achieve that same level? Absolutely. And, you know, I think of the old days when people had a ritual attached to smoking a cigarette. So you could sort of keep count of how much you were consuming, right? So whether you were consuming after every meal or going out to smoke a cigarette, there was a certain ritual and some a level of inconvenience associated with it that would at least prompt you to pace yourself. The covert nature of using an e-cigarette allows for quick and easy pull on a vape cigarette without anyone noticing. And if you ever sit in in one of those AMC theaters and instead of looking at the screen, just look at the audience in front of you, you notice that there's these plumes that just come up every now and then, but you can't smell most of that. 
and that tells you a little bit about how people just find it easy to just sit around and do it in a covert fashion without people around them if you're noticing. And not only that, it's, it's the volume of what you can hold in your hand. You know, a pack of cigarettes is a pack of cigarettes. It's 20 cigarettes. Yeah. You know how big it is. Yeah. Now with these vapes, they can say 6,000 uses or whatever they're calling it. Yeah. You know, 12,000 yeah. hits. And it's still in one little cartridge that you can just hold in your hand. I think it's roughly 200 pulls or something like that. But so the 3% cartridge on a Juul, I, I hate that we're just bashing Juul, which now, by the way, does not have much of a market share. There are other, since the whole intervention from the FDA and they've become less popular. But just to give you a volume reference, 3% Juul pod had uh, 23 milligrams per pod and 5% Jewel pod had like 40 milligrams of, of nicotine. 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 Uh-huh. And how that translates to, you know, in comparison to a cigarette is that a cigarette has inhaled anywhere between 1.1 to 1.8 milligrams. So a cartridge has like a pack's worth of cigarette nicotine in it. Maybe even more. Maybe, Maybe even more. Right. The 5% has a little bit more. Right. What are some, you mentioned some already, long-term effects of chronic nicotine use. Yeah. You know, you said short-term, yeah, maybe a little attention, you get focused, but what are some negative things that happen down the road? Are we talking about nicotine products in general, or are we talking about even like tobacco products and including the... Uh, yeah, I guess that's a challenging question because if you have someone on the patch yeah. or gum, yeah, is there negative long-term use of those devices? Well, those are harm reduction interventions. And the idea with a patch or gum or a lo- nicotine lozenge is that, you know, there's a timeline that you agree upon that, you know, in three months or two months or six months or whatever it is, you'll quit after that. There's a quit date in mind. You can perpetually continue to use it. And some people are in that cycle, but you need to have the intent to quit. And that would be the most appropriate use for those uh, interventions. This is not to say someone who is nicotine naive, who's someone who doesn't vape or doesn't smoke cigarettes, wants a little bit of help with attention and focus to use one of these nicotine medications. You said that's not the appropriate use. There is a market for that, I know, uh, but the delivery system is important uh, to focus on when trying to answer that question. So there are these, um, I, I believe it's called snuff the small pouches that you keep in between your teeth and your gums, and uh, you just allow for a slow release of nicotine. And but depending like, like on, chewing tobacco, like chewing tobacco, which also has some mouth yes, cancer risks, and that's and, exactly where I was going. Right. So there, that has a mouth cancer risk associated with it. We don't fully understand the health consequences associated with the newer products that are available including e-cigarettes, by the way, we just have four or five years worth of data. And the whole E-Valley syndrome that came about in 2019, that was because someone was customizing their e-liquid and added extra retinol or, you know, the the pods that were coming in from China or whatever had extra retinol and caused alveolar damage. So we will learn a lot more over the next decade. Hopefully this does not continue as a trend over the next decade. But yeah, I I think we don't know enough about it to say things definitively. There's also some studies that came out that suggested that people who vape or use e-cigarettes are more likely to use maybe marijuana. Now that some of these cartridges can put 
marijuana or cannabinoid oil in them. Yes. What have you seen in your practice or in the, in the studies? Yeah, it's the same sort of transition that we saw in the past with people that smoked cigarettes, the same sort of proportion of people that were smoking cigarettes had um, a crossover or that gateway effect uh, smoking tobacco or uh, sorry, smoking joints or combustible marijuana products. You have a similar transition from using similar population demographic that transitions from using vaping nicotine products to using vape THC or vape marijuana products. And that can get even more trickier because those are highly unregulated cartridges, partly because it's still illegal in a bunch of states. And people just make it in their these clandestine labs or whatever. God knows how much benzoic acid or retinol is going in there and can cause more uh, lung damage. So independent of the risks of the THC, there's also risks of some of these products that are not regulated. Yeah, yeah. What about marijuana in general? What have you seen with patients who are, can you be addicted to marijuana, first of all? And what are some long-term consequences of prolonged marijuana use? I think the marijuana of the generation of our parents was very different from what we have now. The generation of our parents makes more sense than our parents because... I don't think my parents have ever seen marijuana. <laughs> yeah. So back in the 70s and 80s, the average joint had like 5 to 6% worth of THC in it per given volume. And then that percentage has risen close to 80 to 90% now and has become that highly concentrated form is now also in this propylene glycol thing that has other chemicals in it. You're also inhaling possibly heavy metals that get atomized with the with the coil that allows for the vapor to be formed. And I, I don't know, there are too many variables in there. And the addictive properties of THC are what the addictive properties of THC are. Had this been a less potent form of, uh, of the olden times, there would have been less addiction, I guess. It's just the accessibility has increased. Uh, the concentration's gone off the charts. So yeah, there there is an addiction to THC now. And, and people try, tend to think of it as a benign substance, which it really is not. And the statistics will always be true. There will always be a percentage of people that will develop mental health conditions in reaction to or in association to TAC, including psychotic manifestations. And these individuals are at, at high risk for developing severe mental illnesses for the rest of their lives with continued use. And, you know, there's, there's this other impact of marijuana that we don't talk about where it impairs cognition or <coughs> reaction times. And what about the people that are consuming THC products and then are driving and their reaction times are impaired and get into accidents? You have a breathalyzer to pick up on blood alcohol levels, but what are you going to do when it <laughs> comes to, you know, marijuana use? So vaping is certainly highly prevalent. You know, some statistics suggest that one in five high school students has been exposed to vaping and nicotine, which like you mentioned, is so much more yeah. highly addictive than the original, quote, combustible cigarettes. Yeah. So what do you say out there to people who are listening, maybe to parents or even young adults who say, you know what, I'm probably vaping too much. I need to, I need to quit. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something earlier about the A's, the four A's to quitting. What, tell us about those one more time, what those are, and what are some steps individuals can take to really 
being successful? Yeah, those six A's are more of a, it's more of a mnemonic for helping physicians remember, you know, just in an organized fashion, how you can improve your clinical practice. But if you're struggling to quit, I would say there are a bunch of resources available to you. If you have a primary care physician or a pediatrician, reach out to them. Tell them that you're interested in quitting and they'll guide you through the process. They'll offer you, they'll guide you through all the risks and risks associated with what you've been engaged in and the benefits of quitting. They'll offer you nicotine replacement therapies, pharmacotherapies, different behavioral supports that are necessary for supporting your uh, abstinence. And they'll provide you with the resources that can increase your chances of long-term success in uh, abstaining from nicotine. And then there are these online resources available to you. Go online, check out these smart, uh, you know, these uh, these websites such as My Life, My Quit, Smoke Free Teen, The Truth or The Truth Initiative. Uh, if you're a New York State resident, you can also go to newyorksmokefree.com or call 1-866-NEW-YORK-QUITS. Um, and if you're in the area, you know, you're more than welcome to come over to the program that John Avery and I run called the Youth Nicotine Program and um, see if we can help you. We'll be sure to share all of those links and the phone number and, of course, your contact information. You know, we had Jonathan Avery on the show, I think, almost two years ago, right, when COVID first started. And you said it again here. The same thing he taught me was it's really important to meet people where they are. Yeah. And that just is so well said when it comes to probably every realm yeah. of life, whether it's medicine or relationships or kids, just meeting people where they are is how we're going to make connections and yeah. probably achieve the best outcome that we have. So thank you, Dr. Khan, for really spending time with us here on The Backstory to enlighten us on the hazards of vaping and e-cigarettes and maybe the unforeseen risks. You know, people think they're relatively safe because they're not combustible cigarettes, but uh, there could be some deleterious long-term problems with chronic nicotine use, as you mentioned. And thank you out there to the listeners who tuned into the backstory where we took an in-depth dive on vaping and e-cigarettes. We did not bash a jewel. We just talked about companies that were targeting youth with different flavors and things like that. But take care of each other. Stay tuned for the next episode. And remember, when it comes to your health, we've got your back. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Backstory. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and review The Backstory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. And feel free to share this podcast on social media or even your own website or blog. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. To learn more about Dr. Singh and his clinical research, please follow him on social media. You can also sign up for his newsletter by going to www.rickysinghmd.com. That's R-I-C-K-Y-S-I-N-G-H-M-D dot com.